So the other day, I get an email from one of the bands that I've played here on the show in the past. It's somebody from the band Beachmasters of the Universe. They're a surf band based out of Germany, and they've got an album called Tropica that I've played music from here on the show. And they were booked to be at a particular convention, but with the Corona apocalypse going on, they weren't able to actually go. It was a virtual event, so the band wasn't able to go play a show. Instead, they made a music video at their house using stuffed animals. It was awesome. The music video is now the official music video for the song Zanensegel, and I think I pronounced that right. That is the song that we're using to open this episode of Monster Kid Radio. It's episode 487. Welcome to the show devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. My name is Derek M. Cook. Now, of course, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to the Beach Masters of the Universe. Plus, in the show notes, I'll even embed that really fun music video that they sent me a link to so you can check out the official music video for Simon's Eagle, the song from their album Tropica. Now, if you are going to pick up their album over at beachmasters.bandcamp.com, maybe wait until Friday because the first Friday of every month, Bandcamp is waiving their own fees. All the money that you spend on albums and material that you get at Bandcamp goes directly to the artists in question. So if you're going to pick up any of their music, wait until Friday to do that. Or really any musician you're going to buy music from. Hold off till Friday. You'll be helping those guys and gals out, especially during a time when the best they can really do is make a music video using stuffed animals in their backyard. Anyway, let's get on with this week's show. This week's show is going to be a lot of fun because there's a lot of things happening. First of all, there's a guy whose voice to me means monster authority. I've heard his voice on various DVDs and Blu-rays over the years because he's the guy that has put together these awesome documentaries that got packaged with the Universal Monster movies when they were released on DVD. These documentaries still stand up today, despite them being from when the movies were first put on DVD years ago. They still hold up. And I hear this man in various interviews and just various specials and such, and I hear his voice in my head because he's written so many incredible books about the genre that we love. We're talking about David J. Scal. Now, David's got a new book that's coming out. It's called Fright Favorites, 31 Movies to Hunt Your Halloween and Beyond. Now, it has been released. It's available at your local bookstore and Amazon and anywhere else you buy books. And I'll tell you right now, I highly recommend it, but don't take my word for it because I've got David here on the show. He's going to tell us about the book. He's going to tell us what led to the creation of this book. And we're going to talk a little bit about his background as well. This is the first time that I've had an opportunity to speak with him. And, you know, I had to know how he got started and what led to him becoming one of the foremost authorities when it comes to the classic, and I mean classic era of universal genre cinema. This is a guy who was friends with people. Well, okay, you know what? I don't want to spoil the interview. So that's coming up. Of course, we have Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We can't have an episode of Monster Kid Radio without that segment. It's one of my favorite things that we do here. I also love hearing from you guys and gals, and we have some listener feedback as well. We have the return of Dr. Tongue. Mark Peterson is back with his Dr. Tongue segment. He's going to tell you a little bit about the changes that are coming to that segment in this episode and a brand new segment. I mentioned it last week. It's happening. We are launching Monster Kid Radio's 
beta capsule reviews. What's a beta capsule? Well, if you know what Ultraman is, you know what a beta capsule is. And if you know me, you know that I love Ultraman. You know who else loves Ultraman? My friend, Mark Matsky. Now, Mark Matsky, he's a fellow podcaster. He's been podcasting for a long time. Various podcasts, not just one, but several under his belt. He's been involved with Small Town Monsters. He's a writer. He's a filmmaker. And he's a huge fan of all things kaiju. He currently is spearheading the podcast Monster Study Group, which I highly recommend. It's available where all podcasts are available. Just look up Monster Study Group. He's even on Instagram if you want to follow him over there. Well, he took some time out of his day to start this new segment for us here it's going to be an episode by episode look at all things ultraman but we can't start with ultraman because ultra q was first so he's going to give us a beta capsule review of episode number one it's short it's tight it's sweet it's fun it's awesome the whole episode's great can't wait to get into it especially because at the end of the show i'm going to tell you a little bit about what's coming up this weekend in the monster kid movie club as well as some other things that are happening here in monster kid radio land Oh, yeah. We also have the executive producer roll call from last month's Patreon. That's all coming up, too. Man, there's just a lot to get to. So uh, let's get to it. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. Rats. Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula. The original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you, dear? Tell me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms and he made me drink. Fear will freeze you when you face it. The mummy. Torn from the darkest tomb of the pharaohs, it rises from the quiet dust of centuries to wreak a strange vengeance against mankind. The mummy. 
It tears steel bars like paper. It snaps men's spines like matchsticks. It walks through bullets like a ghost. It sees without eyes, it lives without breath, yet its desires are strangely, madly human. The motion picture screen's most shocking experience in suspense. In Chilling Technicolor, The Mummy. What number is it? What am I calling? You've reached the feedback section of the show. We had a message come in through Facebook from friend of the show, former guest of the show, artist, writer, Alistair Hughes. And you know what? I didn't want to read the email myself, so uh, I pulled the strings and got the monster in my computer to read the email for me. So here we go. Hello, Derek. Episode 486 was a Monster Kids rally featuring a stellar cast of my MKR favorites. Not only was the doctor in, Dr. Gangrene that is, but you discussed a typically wonderful Amicus anthology. Kenny, as usual, bought the famous monster's magic to complement your delightful conversation, and you even began with voicemail from the very talented Reber Clark. And then storyteller supreme Stephen D. Sullivan appeared to talk about his long-awaited book, which boasts a striking cover by the amazing Mark Maddox. Monster Kids Assembled Quite naturally, the topic of the various differing virtues of Amicus versus Hammer arose, and it's a topic which I've written about in some depth at the FASMAT-TO-DO website. However, my conclusion has always been this. Let's not fight, as viewers we will be the only losers in the end. Better to open your heart to both, there's no reason not to love the films from the Hammer House of Horror, and Amicus, the studio that dripped blood. And on an associated topic, your fascinating talk with Stephen has me pondering if Hammer came anywhere close to an example of a monster rally. The best I could come up with was the wonderful Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde which also combines elements of Jack, or is it Jacqueline, the Ripper, and Grave Robbers Burke and Hare. But imagine Baron Frankenstein facing off with Professor Van Helsing in a Cushing split screen orama, or Carmilla Karnstein meets the Reptile, or even, Cornish Zombies vs. Chinese Ghouls. Hmm, my elevator pitch has just descended to the Vault of Horror sub-basement, and clearly, I need to leave the ideas to Stephen. Thank you for yet another brilliant episode Derek. It's very exciting to reflect that MKR number 500 is gradually looming into sight above the odd cityscape of monsterdom. As Larry quite rightly says, we've got to celebrate, man. So first of all, thank you so much for your kind words about the last episode, uh, the last couple of episodes. I was a little worried about putting the Stephen D. Sullivan material about his new book, as well as the conversation with Larry Underwood about the Vault of Horror in the same episode, but I think it worked out just fine, especially since Sullivan's book is all about monster rallies, so to have more than one monster topic in the episode, I think works. And man, how amazing would it have been to see a Hammer film monster rally that would have just been something else i know that steve sullivan did pull from hammer as well as universal and all the other influences that he has to create his book so there may be some hammer influence in there but man if you could go back like you said to get some uh, peter cushing times two action on the screen That'd be really neat. I don't really get the whole, let's pick Hammer over Amicus, but then I'm also the guy who wrote the card for the Classic Five asking people to pick between Hammer and Universal. And I say just love them all. I, I love them all. You guys and gals know that. It's very rare when I actually have nothing nice to say about any of these movies we talk about here on the show. Heck, I'm the guy who loves Mono's Hands of Fate. I love 
everything about these movies. There's just something special about that era of filmmaking. And Amicus and Hammer, completely different flavors, but somehow just seem to work well together. I love them. I'm going to make sure there's a link to the blog that he mentioned. The Monster in the Machine probably mispronounced it. I'm probably going to mispronounce it. Phasmatidea? I'm not really sure. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. It's spelled F-A-S-M-A-T-O-D-E-A dot blogspot dot com. And this is from a 2016 article that he wrote there. Again, link in the show notes. Check that out. Al, I'd love to have you back on the show sooner rather than later. Let's connect because uh, Moon Zero Two is not going to talk about itself. I'm just saying. Now, you can certainly get a hold of me through Facebook, but another way for people to get a hold of us is through our email address. You can just email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or if you have some voicemail, you can always call in and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Al, thanks for writing in, man. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at HeySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again. And remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. When this dead hand moves, the monster created by a man they called Mad is turned loose to strike terror into the hearts of men. (laughs) To shock women into uncontrolled hysteria. To prey upon the innocence of children. This is the story you've heard about, talked about. The spine-tingling, blood-chilling story that stuns your emotions. Frankenstein. Don't touch that! Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, it's time for Dr. Tongue's 3D House of Vintage Monster Collectibles! Hey all, how's everybody out there in MKR land? It has been a while. Anything new happened in the last nine months? I'm glad to be back, having crawled out from under the rock that I've been living under. Now, with this new incarnation of this segment, I am solely going to be focusing on the old classic vintage monster horror toys and collectibles. 
You guys seem to be on top of all the new stuff that's oozing out into the marketplace, so there's no need for me to dig up that grave. Let's begin, shall we? Now, if you're a true monster kid of the 60s and 70s, or just a plain old ordinary kid for that matter from that time, you remember the ritual of choosing your breakfast cereal. Walking up and down the aisle several times before zeroing in on that one box that caught your eye. Ooh, that's a heck of a great looking toy. Knowing darn well you'd be forced to eat what you chose to the very end of the box by your parents. Hey, you chose it? You better eat it. Now this picking process depended more on what was actually in the box than the cereal that was in the box. Unless it was a loser month for those impact prizes, so you just resorted to the safety and comfort of that box of Quisp. Hey, now don't judge me. Then there was the perfect time when the food gods and toy spirits aligned and you got the decent cereal and one heck of a toy. I remember that fateful day back in 1975. Walking down the aisle, looking at all the usual suspects, there was Captain Crunch, peanut butter, not the regular mouth cutter variety, honeycombs, freakies, cocoa puffs, <sighs> Cheerios. Hey, what's this? On the Super Sugar Crisp box? One of four glow-in-the-dark monster posters inside this box. Staring out at me, that little Bing Crosby talking cartoon bear was holding the four objects of my recently discovered obsession. The Wolfman, Phantom of the Opera, Frankenstein's monster, and the creature in all their glow-in-the-dark glory. Well, I think I have found my poison for the next couple of weeks. I grabbed the box and was off. Now, I'm not sure how you obtained your impact prizes, as there were several different methods to an end. There was the get a big bowl and pour it out. There was the open the bottom of the box and access it that way. There was the wait until it fell out into the bowl method for the patient people in the crowd. And then there was my method. You stuck your grimy little hand down into the box and fished around until you hit pay dirt. What? <laughs> it didn't matter that you touched all the cereal with your grimy little kid hands. You're the only one that was going to eat it anyway. I went in and I hit gold. Pulling it out and ripping into the cellophane, I unfolded cereal nirvana. I got Frankie in all his bolt-necked beauty. I thumbtacked it to my bedroom wall, and there it hung for many a year to come. This promotion was a monster kid's dream come true. It was a little late for the initial monster craze of the early to mid-60s. It was more of like a tail-ender before we all became droid-obsessed Jedis a year or so later. The posters themselves are 11 by 14 inches and feature the very popular and well-traveled artwork of both Basil Gogos and James Bama. And to make them that much more tasty, they glowed in the dark fairly well. The images have made the rounds up to this point, having been used on puzzles, model kit boxes, and covers for famous monsters of Filmland magazine. There are some unsubstantiated rumors out there that these posters had been used as an Aurora model kit promo giveaway before being used as the serial impact promotional tool. In today's monster collector market, there are a couple options for you available. There are the original post-serial ones that can be found folded and in various degrees of decomposition from being tacked up on kids' walls over the years, as in my case. 
But during the last part of the 20th century, a warehouse stash of the posters was discovered with them all being flat and unfolded. In premium condition for you anal retentive collectors out there. And these babies are not cheap today. Creatures can get up there, due to his popularity of course, as can Frankie, with the Wolfman and Phantom a little more on the affordable side. And if you are lucky to obtain all four, with them being 11 by 14, you can buy pre-made frames. Voila! It's art! Well, that's it for this time, kiddies. Tune in next time when the Doctor reaches into his creaky chest of monstrous goodness and tells us another tale from... Dr. Tongue's 3D House of Vintage Monster Collectibles! Until then, happy collecting. Sleep tight. No! No! Sheer stark terror grips you in underwater 3D in Creature from the Black Lagoon. The most terrifying monster of the ages rises from the sea, raging with pent-up passions. Making every man his mortal enemy, every woman's beauty his prey. Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D, starring Richard Carlson and Julie Adams. Every horrifying scene leaps out of the screen right at you. A universal re-release rated G. It's a monster marathon. Now all in one gigantic show. Three of the newest and most exciting monster hits. Starring Earth champion and protector Godzilla. First thrill to Godzilla on Monster Island. With more monsters than have ever appeared on the screen at one time. Then it's the action-packed Godzilla versus the cosmic monster. And finally, the classic Godzilla versus Megalon. All three in one colossal show. Rated G. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Episode 1 of Subaraya Productions' Ultra Q premiered on January 2nd, 1966. The title, Defeat Gomez, referred to its gigantic guest star, a strangely familiar monster whose fearsome features are revealed as the opening credits roll. The story concerns an excavation company whose work is interrupted by the discovery of a large cavern and a mysterious stone. When one worker claims to have seen a huge creature in the darkness, the trio of Yuriko, Jun, and Ipe go to investigate, assisted by a youngster familiar with a local legend. The tale of Gomez and Litra seems to symbolize a struggle for balance, but it turns out this myth is true. Defeat Gomez is a thrilling start to the Ultra series, and its debut made a huge splash for Subaraya Productions and the Tokyo Broadcasting System. With access to Toho Studios Special Effects Department and stable of actors, and a budget three times the usual Japanese TV show, Ultra Q dazzled home viewers. Starring Kenji Sahara and Yasuhiko Saijo as pilots Jun and Ipe. This would also mark the introduction of Hiroko Sakurai as journalist Yuriko, who would go on to play the iconic role of Akiko Fuji in Ultraman. Observant viewers will notice that the monster Gomez of the title is, in fact, a repurposed Godzilla suit, and Litra was based on a Rodan prop. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting.
legend of Boggy Creek tells it like it happened. Through the eyes of the big technoscope cameras, you will see wildlife living with nature, a treat you will not soon forget. This is the setting for the new motion picture, Legend of Boggy Creek, filmed entirely on location around Falk, Arkansas. It is the true story of the Falk monster. This motion picture is being acclaimed by the motion picture industry as a strong contender for that industry's top award, the Academy. The Legend of Boggy Creek, color by Technicolor, is a PL film production presentation. It's so scary, we dare you to see The Monsters Crash the Pajama Party, the first movie ever filmed in horror vision, Hollywood's latest miracle. You'll scream as fiendish movie monsters actually become alive, then crash right out of the screen, go into the audience, and carry screaming girls from their seats right back into the picture to become part of the movie. We warn you, horror vision is not 3D. The movie monsters become real flesh and blood. Be sure to see The Monsters Crash the Pajama Party in horror vision and color. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we're going to look at films that were covered in Famous Monsters 26 from January of 1964. The first film featured was King Kong, yet another article about this classic film, which seems to be FM's favorite for all the coverage it got at this time. Next up is a look at the 1910 Silent Frankenstein. Though not credited as such, it seems to be coming from publicity material from the time when the film was released. In making the film, the Edison Company has carefully tried to eliminate all the actually repulsive situations and to concentrate its endeavors upon the mystic and psychological problems that are to be found in this weird tale. Wherever, therefore, the film differs from the original story, it is purely with the idea of eliminating what would be repulsive to a moving picture audience. After this, there is a complete synopsis, including the thrilling ending. The article concludes with this paragraph. To those who are familiar with Mrs. Shelley's story, it will be evident that we have carefully omitted anything which might by any possibility shock any portion of an audience. To those who are not familiar with the story, we can only say that the film tells an intensely dramatic story by the aid of some of the most remarkable photographic effects that have yet been attempted. The formation of the hideous monster from the blazing chemicals of a huge cauldron in Frankenstein's laboratory is probably the most weird, mystifying, and fascinating scene ever shown on a film. The most interesting film covered in FM26 was the Turkish Dracula, Dracula in Istanbul. It was written by Giovanni Skornamilo, a Turkish film critic known to be an expert on Turkish trash cinema. Here is how it started. Cacique Voivoda, the impaling Voivode, the ruler with the reputation for impaling his enemies in centuries past and surviving through generations into the present to make all those pale who cross his path. A certain Transylvanian nobleman famous for his insane cruelty and lust for blood, Count Dracula. In 1928, a noted Turkish author, Ali Risa Saifi by name, undertook to adapt Bram Stoker's classic tale of vampirism and terror. As noted previously, he called his finished work The Impaling Voivode. An immediate success, it remained a bestseller for years. Today, it is a rare collector's item. Then, ten years ago, 
the word went out in Istanbul that a film version was to be made of the noted novel. Turkish motion picture producer Turgut Demirag, who for six years had been studying movie techniques in the United States, decided to produce a melodrama adapted from the impaling Bovoide. He gave his picture the more appropriate title of Dracula Istanbulda, Dracula in Istanbul. The screenplay was written by the famous Turk writer of detective novels, Umit Deniz, and it won the equivalent of an Oscar, directed by Mehmet Mutar, one of the most versatile and subtle villains of the Turkish screen, was chosen for the leading role. The five-page, seven-photo article continues with the synopsis of the story, which is exactly like the Dracula we know, except for one interesting difference. Instead of the cross being a weapon against the evil count, the Koran is used. I thought this article interesting because it is a film that the average 1964 FM reader would never think they would be able to see. Today, it is easily found on YouTube. How times have changed. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. How cool was that? Kenny, that was awesome. Now, I come to expect that kind of article to appear in a monster magazine Today, I would have never guessed that an article on Dracula in Istanbul would have turned up in a classic issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland. And you're right, back then, Monster Kids probably wouldn't have had a chance to see it. But today, there are plenty of ways for people to check it out. And I'm going to check it out, especially since in October, I plan on doing something special regarding Dracula and my YouTube channel. So that movie is definitely going to be something that I'm going to want to look into. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. And of course, thank you, Kenny, for this segment. (laughs) Welcome to an evening with Karloff, the master of menace in five fright-filled features. Watch breathlessly as the coffin opens. Release the Terra Duck. <laughs> it's only a gallon bowls, the Raven. Join Boris Karloff in the most gruesome day of the undead, Black Sabbath. Chilling delights. Die, monster, die. And who knows? You may die. Laughing at the comedy of terrors. Five of Carlos' creepiest capers in nightmare colors. And you are invited. C-3PO. Loki. Mace Windu. Dr. Bruce Banner. Captain Rex. Venom. Princess Leia. Jean Grey. Darth Maul. Nick Fury. Grand Moff Tarkin. Captain America. Lando Calrissian. Cyclops. What do all these characters have in common? Well, two of them were played by Samuel L. Jackson. A couple of them were played by Hammer Films veterans Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Come on, guys. You know this. Well, of course we do, Jessica. Just like Mickey Mouse and Captain Jack Sparrow, they're all now Disney characters. Hello, I'm Tracy of the Disney Indiana Podcast, and my co-host Scott and I enjoy talking about all aspects of the House of Mouse, and that includes their newest properties, Marvel and LucasArts. 
We also talk about Disney resorts, the cruise line, theme parks, and whatever else Mickey has to offer. Which includes movies, imagineering, video games, and collectibles. You'll never know what we'll decide to talk about. So check us out at www.disneyindiana.com or do a search for the Disney Indiana podcast on iTunes. Because now we've got a lot more to talk about. And don't forget about those other quote-unquote Disney characters like, well, Sully. Fozzie Bear. Buzz Lightyear. Link Hogthrob. Doug. Janice. Merida. Pepe. Bruce. Ralph the Dog. Wally. The Disney Indiana Podcast. Even after five years, we're still miles away from the nearest Main Street, USA. We're not listed on the map, but you can join us at www.disneyindiana.com. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I am honored and thrilled to have this week's guest on the show. His books have been on my bookshelves for years. His documentaries have been on my DVDs for years. I've been learning about these classic monster movies from this gentleman for so long. It's just a thrill to have Mr. David J. Scal on the show. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio. Well, thank you for having me, Derek. I am really excited about the new book. On the off chance, though, that people don't know who you are, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other books that you've done. Everything that I know about Todd Browning began with your book, Dark Carnival, which is a fantastic read. I've learned more about Bela Lugosi and Bram Stoker from you than anybody else out there with things like the Hollywood Gothic, the monster show, something in the blood. You're living the dream. You're researching about these movies and writing about these movies and getting paid for it. How did that happen? Well, I get a lot of fan mail from people saying, I'd really like to be a film historian and have a uh, career exactly like yours. How do I do it? And I tell them, well, first, keep your day job, because uh, <laughs> there aren't many people who've uh, pulled off what I seem to have pulled off. It's a fairly small field, too. Kind of created my own brand within uh, the horror brand. I got into it via the theater. At least I got into book writing through the theater. Uh, I was interested in monsters since I was a uh, a kid. You know, at the age of 10, I discovered famous monsters of Filmland and uh, the old Universal Pictures. And they were just being released to television for the uh, first or second time around. And you couldn't just access movies in those days. There was no streaming on demand. There was no home video. You had to wait until a television station decided you would be able to see a film or some art house would uh, uh, revive something. But in its place, you had the magazines and you had the fan clubs and you could swap pictures and and have pen pals all over the United States who uh, were into what you were into. And I was very much part of that generation. Uh, I like to call us monster kids. We're an interesting generation, you know, uh, also because so many of us took media into our own hands. We couldn't see these films as much as we wanted, but we could make our own eight millimeter extravaganzas in uh, the basement or the backyard, uh, you know, outfitted like some kind of cemetery or whatever. <laughs> and some of us became Steven Spielberg, you know, uh, not all of us, but a lot of us had interesting careers in the media. My big interest was theater. And I really put away monsters for a while. And I worked in the marketing and promotional end of nonprofit theater for um, almost 30 years. Actually, Bram Stoker and I have that in common. We we worked in the theater professionally for uh, most of the time. We were also uh, writing about horror. And I'd been writing science fiction stories and novels for uh, 
quite a while. I mean, I, re- I started publishing right out of college and I got good reviews and but didn't make a lot of money at it. And my agent suggested, why don't you try a nonfiction book? And are there any subjects that you've uh, ever wanted to tackle? And I said, as a kid, I was really into monster movies. And that film Dracula especially just obsessed me. But I've never read anything about the real backstory and the personalities and, and all that. All the books that are out there just basically say the same things and not satisfying my curiosity. So I said, maybe that'll be an idea. So she said, okay, I'm going to be on vacation for a couple of weeks put together just a one-page description for me of this this book you'd like to do. And so I did. I called the book Hollywood Gothic, The Tangled Web of Dracula from Novel to Stage to Screen and handed it over to my rep. And two weeks later, she got back to me and said, uh, I've got 20 publishers interested in this. Wow. Which had never happened with any of my novels. And, and the other good thing about nonfiction is that you can get a contract at an advance based on a uh, sample chapters and an outline, unlike a novel where you almost always have to uh, you know, submit the whole thing. So I said, well, this sounds like fun. And so I settled on W.W. W. Norton, who remains my primary publisher. I've published with most of the big houses, but uh, Norton is my home base and, uh, and always will be. Unlike a lot of the other publishers, Norton is the last holdout. It's the last big New York publisher that's independently owned you know, by the... Uh, by the employees mm, okay. and it's not part of a part of a conglomerate and um, um, it's still dedicated to uh, a certain level of quality and uh, care that uh, many other publishers shall we say have um, have abandoned uh, but uh, I, I, I was I was very lucky to uh, attract their attention and I'm still very lucky to have them as a publisher I'd hate to be looking for a publisher for my first book at this point in our glorious economic history. It must be extremely difficult, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next year or so with trade publishing in general. Although I understand sales are up. I mean, it's all online. People aren't hanging out in bookstores the way they they used to. Anyway, I thought it was going to be a one-shot, and I'd go back to doing my theater work, and lo and behold, the book was, uh, was very successful. I had Places like Newsweek call it the uh, you know the ultimate book on Dracula, and chose it as one of the top gift books for the Christmas season, 1990. Wow! And that certainly helped a lot. Yeah. And the book got good reviews, and uh, people read it. I got a lot of fan mail on it, and was asked to do something else to top it. So this time I uh, said, okay, well let's take on the whole cycle of uh, horror entertainment in the 20th century because there were a number of kind of standard books you could go to, but they didn't have the kind of detail I was interested in. So I thought, okay, I uncovered a lot of untapped material for uh, for Hollywood Gothic. And it came because I was working in the theater. And uh, one of my clients at the time was one of the producers for the Frank Langella revival of Dracula on Broadway the Edward Gorey production that was such a uh, hit for so many years. And I asked her about, well, who represents the estates for uh, Dean Balderson and Stoker? And I wondered if there were any uh, negotiation files from back in the 30s still available. And lo and behold, uh, I was given an introduction and uh, walked into this Times Square 
skyscraper and one of the older skyscrapers and there in a battered filing cabinet that hadn't been opened in 60 years were all of the negotiation correspondence and contracts and everything having to do with both the stage and the film version of Dracula. So I realized it was kind of a gold mine and Universal I had approached from the outset and they just weren't interested in working with me at all. They said, uh, you know, this film's a classic and we're not going to do anything that's going to you know, cheapen its uh, value for us or something. It was kind of insulting. So I had to figure out a way to do it without any universal documents, nothing that was proprietary to them. And I did it. There's not a single universal uh, internal memo or anything like that, uh, something that is not out there in the public already that I used. And uh, what I did find is that uh, everybody associated with Dracula was crazed and obsessed themselves. I mean, it's like everybody who crossed the path of that literary property and wanted to control it or make money with it or exploit it usually drove themselves crazy or drove everyone around them crazy. It was just a uh, a delicious thing. And I'd been a novelist uh, already. So I adopted a kind of approach that, that's really informed all of my books. It's uh, you know, using novelistic techniques to talk about the people and the personalities that drive the film history. So I've uh, always relied on a combination of anecdote and analysis. In my books, that seems to be a winning combination. It seemed to work for me, and here I am, 30 years later, uh, still at it. I got Hollywood Gothic uh, and The Monster Show, have they have been steadily in print. They have never gone out of print in 30 years. The Monster Show especially has gone through multiple editions in the United States and the current edition from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux is in like its 15th printing already. I've had a half dozen translations and it just, you know, it keeps giving back. I always appreciate that. It usually makes Christmas a little easier for me. That's great. I realize it's unusual. Usually these kinds of books are kind of a flash in the pan and don't go into a second printing, much less stay in print for 30 years. So I update it every once in a while. The 33rd anniversary of the Monster Show is coming up in 2023. And no, it will be the 30th anniversary in uh, 2023. And I will probably add yet another uh, afterward or do, do some sprucing up around the edges. It was supposed to be about the 20th century, and now we are very much into the 21st. So I feel like in a time travel kind of a <laughs> mode as well as uh, a horrific one. I look at your bibliography. I look at the film reference books that you've done. And in the 90s, like you said, there wasn't a lot of that happening. Now, these days, we've got a number of other people also publishing, maybe not at the same level as you are in terms of like working with a publishing house in New York and things like that. But there are a lot more books out there. But I always end up coming back to your books because of what you just said. There's a, a novelistic approach to some of the material. I love when you talk about trying to get a hold of Angelo Rosito and talk with him. There's a part of the journey that you take us on while you're researching some of the book, but then you don't get lost in that and you still give us the material, uh, the facts, but it's presented in such uh, a unique way, especially for the time. I keep going back to it. I stumbled across the monster show completely accidentally. It was in an, a used bookstore somewhere. There's this old battered copy 
no offense, I had no idea who you were <laughs> at the time. And and I, I saw the book there and I thought, you know what? I, bat, bat, that's a, no, no, bat, Battered is a compliment. It means it's been very well read. <laughs> so, so I picked it up, I brought it home, and I was enthralled. I got through it within a few days. And I giggled when I got to the end because apparently a previous owner of this book was some Catholic priest somewhere who had stamped in the back of the book property of father so-and-so and then the church of whatever. And it's okay. That's awesome, I guess. Um, <laughs> so I, I love that. But now I've since picked it up and, and got a, a nice pristine copy that I have on my bookshelf alongside of some of your other works. But that used book opened up my eyes to so much more about Lugosi, Dracula, what was going on at the time, uh, the way horror movies and monster movies were being used to reflect what was going on in society and the different fears that people had in general. And it, it really kind of made me think about these monster movies that I love so much in a different way. And I want to thank you for that because it's enriched these monster movies in such a way that I don't think would have been possible without some of these things being explained to me and described to me in such compassion the way that your books do. Well, thank you. People are always asking me, you know, why do you write the kind of books you do? And I said, well, there's basically one reason. I write the books that I can't find anywhere to read. That's the, uh, the simple and the very true answer. And when I started out, I suddenly realized, you know, my God, I'm talking to some of these Hollywood people for like the first time they've ever been asked to go on the record. So much of Hollywood history has just gone forever because nobody ever sat down with a tape recorder and talked to these people about their lives. They, they, they thought no one would ever. They were approaching, at that time when I started, like in the late 80s, people were approaching like the limit of human memory of these films and these times. So I uh, did burrow in and really just try to pump them for every, everything I could get. It was so much fun to meet uh, the actor Raymond Huntley, who originated the part of Dracula in the West End and on tour in, uh, in England in the 20s. And he was a very young man at the time. He was, he was only about 20 years old, but he was one of these character actors who could project much older and that's the only reason we uh, could be in the same room together, because I was in my 40s, and Bela Lugosi had died when I was four years old. And this is the man sitting in front of me who gave Lugosi the part in Dracula by refusing it uh, when it was offered to him for Broadway. And so this time travel you know, metaphor keeps popping up again and again with all kinds of things I do. But it's fun. With Dracula, I got to meet so many of the people. I became very friendly with uh, David Manners, who generally really resented people approaching him. He was in his early 90s when I first met him, and he was used to turning people away because, as he told somebody who really irritated him, you don't care about me. I'm just a surrogate for you for Bela Lugosi. Oh, no. <laughs> and, 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 and you know that that's actually the case. But I got to know him well enough that we talked about all kinds of things. This you are there quality, you know, is something you can't fake. And so you've got to find the living people or you've got to find documents that nobody's ever, ever looked at. So I'm not sure I've got another Hollywood book of the same type in me because uh, I, I kind of strip mine the, the available resources. I suppose if I could get into the legal files, of the studios, Universal especially, 
there would be just uh, a whole new cycle of books I could do, but I'm never going to. But the legal battles and the contract battles, uh, all of that, I got, I, got, I got enough of them, I think, to uh, give a special flavor to my books. But, oh, there's more there. There's always more there. <laughs> yeah, sadly, we're kind of in a place now where a lot of these these performers, these actors and actresses and crew just aren't with us anymore. I'm so glad that so, there have been so many uh, since I started publishing. There have been so many film historians who have uh, started doing the same thing and in a much more comprehensive way you know, than um, I have, just going out and getting these people to give an oral history for the first time. A lot of people, a lot of actors, they retire from Hollywood. Some of them are somewhat embittered or their careers didn't go where they thought it might. And the idea that anyone would want to talk to them comes from out of left field, but they're usually very happy to do so. So I think now we're getting much more documentation of the older films and the modern films. There's a whole uh, crop of journalists and you know, magazines, you know, starting with Rue Morgue and Fangoria and all of these that do really quite credible journalism. I mean, real interviews with the people. It's not, uh, you know, the studio handouts. So that their future generations will be able to delve into our uh, pop culture expressions, I think, much more easily than some of us did when we started. I love that phrase, pop culture expressions. I'm going to use that. I like that. Pop culture expressions, eruptions, whatever they are. <laughs> you know, there's something that we do on every episode of Monster Kid Radio, and I want to kind of sidetrack to that real quick before we get back to talking about what you've done in your career and, and some other things. We have a game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio. It's called the Classic Five, and I've got a deck of cards here. It's a literal deck of cards that I've had made up. Each one of these cards has a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question. It's just kind of a way to get Monster Kids talking, continue the conversation, things like that. How do you feel about playing a round of the Classic Five with me, sir? I... Yes, I don't have a choice. <laughs> Let's do it. All right, one more shuffle here. And I'm actually going to pull most of these cards from the uh, Universal Expansion deck that I have here because you know, I have a feeling that's probably your area of expertise compared to the other cards I have here. All right, card number one. Ooh, what's your favorite Lon Chaney Jr. Inner Sanctum film? Oh, for God's sakes. Um, <laughs> these questions are not supposed to be easy. They're not easy. And I've seen a number of them, but I don't recall them in the kind of detail that uh, they they never really grabbed me. I never uh, felt like I had to dig into them. I don't think the inner sanctum things that, that were, you know, were, were Cheney's, uh, you know, greatest moments. Uh, he never really did anything. Uh, Larry Talbot and the Wolfman approaches the pathos of uh, Lenny and of Mice and Men. Sure. That was a monster-like part, you know, that probably uh, helped typecast him. Cheney, I think, was largely, you know, wasted by Universal. He was a complicated and personally tormented man, and but he did make the Wolfman, you know, his sure. very own monster. It was the uh, only monster played by one actor at Universal during the 30s and 40s. I can't imagine anybody else ever playing that character at all. I know they kind of rotated out different Frankenstein monsters and mummies and things like that, but I cannot imagine anybody but Cheney doing the Wolfman. I just can't see it. I agree. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll move on to another question, another card here. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't know. Should we go on to another one? Oh, no, gonna... it's fine. It's all oh, good. this one, too? It's all good. No, <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Who never appeared in a Universal monster movie, but you wish they had? Who never appeared in a Universal monster movie? Well, I'm going to kind of hedge this one because, okay. uh, well, Peter Lorre, certainly. He was offered the part of Wolf von Frankenstein and Son of Frankenstein. 
But the actor who we really missed some great things from, even though he did some universals, was Claude Rains, who appears on the uh, on studio memos as one of the first choices for Dr. Pretorius in Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, wow. He was an actor very well known to James Whale, not just for The Invisible Man, but going back to the uh, West End Theater. That, I think, was uh, it would have, would have been a very different kind of character than the one played by uh, Ernest Thesiger. I think he would have done something very striking with it. And like Laurie, he was also offered the Rathbone part in Son of Frankenstein. I saw the letter from his agent to Universal saying, you know, regarding Son of Frankenstein, we are going to turn this down because, after all, it is a Frankenstein. (laughs) (laughs) So Reigns didn't uh, want to uh, get too close to the uh, genre himself. I think it took some arm twisting to get him to do The Phantom of the Opera. And I'm sure there are other actors who just never gravitated over toward Universal. They were the studio that first created these monster franchises and built up stars like Karloff and Lugosi, who were a new kind of screen icon. I mean, they kind of built on what Lon Chaney was in the silent era. Other studios just didn't do it. And so they didn't uh, have the kind of actors falling into these kinds of roles in the same way. I mean, Universal really uh, put horror movies on the map, you know, as far as Hollywood is concerned. Sure. Yeah. No, without Universal, we don't have monster movies as they are today. Everything they they did, even into the 40s, 50s and beyond, when they were kind of more just kind of milking them a little bit, they still put them out there and still made them available to us. And I love Universal for that. I'm a Universal fan hands down because of what they did with Dracula and Frankenstein, the Wolfman, the Mummy, all of them. Creature from the Black Lagoon is my favorite film. And it's just... Without Universal, we just don't have the genre as we have it now. That's one of my favorites, too, even though it's not from the earlier period that I've uh, spent most of my time with. But it was so much fun doing the documentary uh, Back to the Black Lagoon for Universal for the first DVD release. And it's still there on the Blu-ray today because for so many of the other films, everybody was dead. And you had to talk to other film historians and children of stars and things like that. But here we had three of the main actors, both creatures, Ben Chapman, Rico Browning, and Julie Adams. They were all delightful people to meet. Uh, Only Rico's with us right now, but uh, I uh, interviewed him in front of an audience just last year for the 60th anniversary celebration of uh, Creature. It was held down in Florida at the same uh, springs where the film was filmed. And it was amazing how just durable that movie is and how dedicated the fans are. They just cannot get enough of it. It's a wonderfully made film. And the design of the monster doesn't get uh, as much credit as I think it should because it it really is quite beautiful as a piece of design work. It's gorgeous. It's a perfect example of form follows function. There aren't doodads attached to it. It's, uh, it's, if you hadn't, if you had a man who was also this amphibian gill creature, this is what he would look like. I've always really admired that. And, uh, and of course the designer, Millicent Patrick, finally being acknowledged as the primary designer of the thing, Bud Westmore liked to keep her kind of in the shadows, I guess. But yeah, it's the one universal monster designed by a woman. I don't think 
there's been one since. You know, I'm trying to think. I can't think of anybody off the top of my head. But listeners, if you think of anybody, let me know because I think I think David's right. I, I can't think of anybody who's really kind of stepped up and created something as durable or enduring as as the Gilman. I've had a chance to meet uh, Rico, and before she passed, I, I was friends with Julie, and uh, they were both wonderful to speak with. I never had a chance to meet with Ben, uh, so I have to rely on documentaries like yours to to have that connection and that interaction. But Rico is still going. He's still doing the convention circuit. He was just at a convention like a couple of weekends ago, despite what's going on in the world. Oh, that's great. He's still going. That's he's great. still doing it. So, uh, And he's a wonderful guy. He doesn't get around the way he used to. He no longer swims. I thought he might. Uh, he um, actually <laughs> inspired me. He and Julie and other senior citizens who swim encouraged me to finally learn how to swim at the age of 65. <laughs> and uh, I'm still doing it. I try to do it every day. And I think I, I would have felt ridiculous, except that when I saw Julie do a, uh, she did uh, an arthritis uh, medicine commercial as a swimmer. Oh, wow. And this was long after we had done our thing. And I said, well, if Julie can do it and Rico and Ben can do it, I can do it too. I won't claim to be a really good swimmer, but I've mastered the basics, and I, I, I just just love it. <laughs> and when I go to the pool, I have a, a keychain with uh, a creature from the Black Lagoon keychain that I always use for the pool trips. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love that. Normally, we do five questions. I'm going to ask you one more, and then we'll talk about the new book coming up. Of all the collaborations they did together, what's your favorite Lugosi-Karloff collaboration? Oh, I think it has to be the Black Cat. Yeah, that's what most Their people say. first yeah. <laughs> time together. I think it was it was the best script and the best director, I think, they had for any of their collaborations. They would have done Dracula's Daughter together had James Whale gotten his way, but Whale wasn't crazy about doing the film. So he concocted this script with his uh, screenwriter, uh, R.C. Sheriff, that neither Universal or the censors would ever allow. But it was tailor-made for Karloff and Lugosi. It would have... Dracula's backstory of how he became a vampire, which had to do with a wizard named Talifer, who would have been played by Karloff, who puts a curse on him 500 years ago. It would have been a remarkable film. The script still exists, so people can enjoy it in that way. But the dialogue is written with both of those actors very specifically in mind. You, you can just hear them speaking the words. But the Black Cat, you know, David Manners, who I, I knew, was also in the film. And he didn't think much of Hollywood. I mean, he came from a stage background and found all of the methods of movie making to be completely antithetical to what he knew he could do as an actor. Uh, he, t he told me, you know, the actors aren't in control of anything. They just put these chalk marks on the on the floor and they shoot out of sequence. The actor has no control whatsoever. And he said, but with the Black Cat, it was the first time that a director had actually sat down with the cast and tried to explain to them what he was trying to accomplish artistically and what he wanted out of certain scenes. He didn't treat the actors like cattle. Of course, I also like it because it illustrates one of my great theories is that World War I was the uh, driving cultural force behind uh, horror entertainment in the 20th century. And here the story itself is explicitly about that. So it, it's quite a good film, and it's the only film that David Manners did in Hollywood that he could bear to watch. And the folks at the retirement home he was living in at the time had uh, surprised him one night with a, uh, a videotape, and he uh, hated everything else. 
he insisted he had never even seen Dracula because he just found it so unpleasant to make and he knew it was a stinker to begin with and why would he want to watch it? Uh, That's too bad. I'm not sure I believed him. Okay. (laughs) But that was the story he he stepped in. Yeah, I love the Black Cat. I love the performances. I love the direction, the pacing. It's just a wonderful film. Uh, it, It deals with some pretty dark material, but I enjoy the heck out of it. It's so good. I want to talk about the new book that's coming up. I mean, that's the whole reason why I reached out to you to begin with. We've got a new book coming out from TCM, Fright Favorites, 31 Movies to Haunt Your Halloween and Beyond. And it's coming out the beginning of September uh, in hardback and an ebook edition, it looks like, as well. Did they contact you or did you contact them about putting this book together? They commissioned me to, uh, to do this. They had done a couple of holiday-themed uh, books, uh, two Christmas film books that had done extremely well for them. And so uh, Halloween being the second biggest commercial holiday after Christmas, it made sense for them to dig into that. And I liked what they had done with the other books. And this sounded like a lot of fun. And it let me use a lot of uh, research that I could not uh, fit into some of my other books and also gave me uh, the chance to poke around in the Turner photo archives and also uh, private collection archives. The thing I enjoy doing more than almost anything else when I'm doing one of these horror movie books is, you know, finding the still that like nobody's seen before or hardly anybody's seen before. And did come up with a few gems. So it's not the same old, same old as you go through. It's a chronological uh, selection. It goes from Murnau's Nosferatu to Jordan Peele's Get Out. It's very eclectic. They're basically all my choices. Turner did have some uh, influence, too, and there were so many films that we added a kind of a also-ran to uh, each listing. So there are really 62 oh, wow. films that are spotlighted in the book, and it became apparent that one book couldn't possibly accomplish everything. So we didn't try to accomplish everything, <laughs> and with luck, we'll... Uh, be doing a follow-up the same way the Christmas book did. Oh, wow. But it's beautifully designed. I had a lot of fun working with the designers and the copy editors and the fact checkers. Copy editors are the unsung heroes of commercial publishing because no matter how many times you go over your own material, the biggest, most obvious mistakes will remain on the page. The factual mistakes, the spelling mistakes, and they were top-notch on that regard as well. TCM works with Running Press, the publisher in, in Philadelphia. They do all kinds of terrific film-related books that I encourage your listeners to check out. Fright Favorites will be in the stores on uh, September 1st, and then we will be doing most of our publicity during, uh, for the month of October, we will be doing something every single day as a kind of a countdown uh, you know, to Halloween, it's going to be fun. So uh, there'll be social media, there'll be YouTube, there'll be Turner's regular programming, which will feature all kinds of horror films for the month of uh, October. Uh, It's not tied specifically to the ones in the book, although many of them will be. And there'll be some other surprises to come. There's been a tremendously positive response from people who uh, delve into it. I think they'll, uh, I think they'll have a keeper. This is a very, it's a very handsome book. But who am I to say? I'm, I'm just the writer. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking at the list here. On Amazon, you can actually look at the description of the book, and it'll tell you 
31 of the movies that are listed. Obviously, there are more, as you just said. And I'm not going to go through it here. I don't want to necessarily spoil it. But I will say there's a couple of silent films. There's a couple of universal classics. There's a couple of Hammer films. You've got Vincent Price and William Castle represented. You've got Barbara Steele on here. You've got George Romero. You've got a couple of Wes Craven movies. You're hitting all the marks here. And like you said, it goes all the way up into... uh, Get Out, which I also found to be an incredibly good film, a scary film. So to start with Nosferatu, like you said, and end with Get Out, there's a huge range of horror and monster movies here. And I think it's something that's going to do very well. I can't wait to get my hands on the book. It looks fantastic. I'm looking forward to the publication. I'm, I don't have a physical copy yet recording this at the beginning of August, but I have the color PDF printout of it. It looks pretty good. I hope people get what I get out of it. There will be familiar information, but I hope I've provided enough nuggets of new anecdotes, new facts, new photos, that it will be a worthy addition to your bookshelf and not something redundant. If nothing else, I hope it directs people to check out some of the movies that you've mentioned or that you've put on this list. There are so many movies on here that I consider must-see if you're a monster kid. I hope that somebody out there gets this book and finds a new favorite movie based on what you've presented here. I do, too. More than one favorite movie. I mean, people are always asking me, you know, what is your favorite Dracula movie? And I don't have a favorite. There are many films I really admire. I guess my favorite version of Dracula would be, you know, a mashup edit uh, with uh, all of the familiar scenes, but uh, taken from different movies and spliced together and uh, let that familiar dialogue actually kind of ping pong across uh, wow. uh, across productions. But I'm not up for that, but I hope somebody out there runs with it because I'd love to see it. So that would be amazing to see. And I think I've even heard you mention that in previous interviews as well. So I hope somebody out there is doing that and someday we'll see some sort of master Dracula cut. That would be amazing. David, I want to thank you for being part of Monster Kid Radio. Having you on the podcast is a real thrill and a real honor for me. Uh, like I said, you've been part of my Monster Kid dumb since I first stumbled across uh, Dark Carnival and started learning more about the people behind the camera uh, with the Todd Browning book. And then I loved In the Blood so much. I didn't really know a lot about Bram Stoker. I thought I did. And then I read your book and realized I, I knew nothing. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you'll appreciate the the wonderful new, massively expanded and revised version of uh, Dark Carnival that will be coming out in a limited edition from Centipede Press, Ooh. probably around the first of the year. I think this is the ultimate, um, you know, Todd Browning book. You don't often get to do, um, you know, museum quality <laughs> photo reproduction and printing, and you don't often get access to Todd Browning's personal scrapbooks and photo collection as I did for this. So it will be a limited numbered edition and I will post information about it as soon as it's available, but it will go very, very fast. A word to the wise. Centipede Press does amazing work, so I can't wait to see that come out. You know, I'm going to try to snatch that up, too, as soon as it's available, because, like you said, it'll go out of print real quick. I would love to invite you to come back on the show at some point in the future. There are so many things that I imagine you and I could talk about, uh, future topics. I would love to talk to you about the Spanish Dracula at some point. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, This is a lot of fun. I'd be happy to come back anytime you'd like me to. That sounds great. David, you can expect a phone call. We'll make make it happen. And best of luck with the new book. Listeners, I'm going to make sure there's a link in the show notes where you can go and order your own copy now. Do you have a website anywhere people can follow up with what's going on with you, David? Yes, monstershow.net. 
and we'll make sure there's a link to that as well. Uh, once again, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And if I don't talk to you before then, have a great Halloween here in a few months. You too. It's going to be kind of a virtual Halloween this year. It's going to be weird. Uh, yeah. Uh, my book tour, I guess it's part of my virtual book tour. I may be doing one uh, live event. Otherwise, it's via Zoom and other platforms. It's a brave new world out there. We'll see how it works. Well, like I said, I'm going to make sure there's a link to his website in the show notes, but there's nothing stopping you from going over there right now to find out what David's up to. Go to his website at monstershow.net. Of course, there are links in the show notes as well for you to pick up your own copy of Fright Favorites, 31 Movies to Haunt Your Halloween and Beyond. I have a copy of it here, and it is compact. It's small enough that it's not going to take up a lot of room, but man, is it dense. It is packed with information. And the photos that he was talking about, this thing, you can't go a page without finding some more pictures. This thing is packed with illustrations, photography, black and white, and color. I can't recommend this book enough for Halloween gift giving or Christmas gift giving or just gift giving in general. It's a good book. Listeners, check it out. It's got the Monster Kid Radio seal of approval. David, thank you for being part of the show this week. And I meant it, man. I want to have you back on to talk about the Spanish language version of Dracula. I've heard you give interviews about that before, and I want to pick your brain a little bit about it as well. But I'll be gentle. I promise. <laughs> Trap. 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 <laughs> They're traps. In a whirlpool of shrieking fear. From the most fiendish idea ever conceived by the human brain. The brainiac. And it has a friend. She was beautiful, desirable, and not altogether human. The curse of the crying women. Together they will trap you in a world of horror. But if you live through it, you will never forget. The Brainiac and the Curse of the Crying Women. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of The Supernatural Solutions, The Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. for the executive producer roll call. These are people who have supported Monster Kid Radio by becoming a patron over at Monster Kid Radio's Patreon page, patreon.com slash Monster Kid Radio. If you support the show at 
the Toho level or higher, you get your name read off during this very special segment that we do once a month here on the show. These are the executive producers for the month of August. The United Nations of Horror, Chris Staggs, Anthony Wendell, Timothy Forbes, Andrew Campbell, the Mabuse cast, Ted Roddy, Tom Greganis, James Moore, Don Evans, Jerry Green, Curtis, T. McKay, Dwayne and Jen Watson, Alistair Hughes, Stephen Turek, Karen Joan Kahotik, Tammy Anschutz, Paul Curtis, Jonathan Agarella, Charles Babbage, Terry Mount, Bayou Hunter, Jeff Owens, Mitch Gonzalez, Justin Jallo, Steve Sullivan, Tracy and Scott Morris, and of course, Kenny. Thanks again for being part of Monster Kid Radio's success. I wouldn't be able to do what I do without you. Thank you very much. I will be updating the website probably tomorrow to reflect everybody who has supported the show at the AIP level or higher, because that's one of the perks you get for being a patron of Monster Kid Radio and contributing $2 a month at that level. Again, you can learn all about our Patreon campaign over at patreon.com slash monsterkidradio. Some of the things that I'm most proud of is the monster movie bingo card that you get, a new one every month that you support Monster Kid Radio at the hammer level or higher. So go check that out. There are links in the show notes. It's pretty easy to find our Patreon page. Thanks again for all of your support. It means a lot. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio, but that doesn't mean you have to wait another week for more monsters because this Saturday is the Monster Movie Kid Club, and it is a big one, literally. We're showing a bunch of movies with big monsters. We are going to be showing the giant Gila monster, the beast from Hollow Mountain, the lost world, Christopher R. Mims, the giant spider, is coming back for a return engagement. And I might be able to sneak something else in there, too. Stay tuned to learn more. We'll also be kicking off our new serial, episode one of The Return of Chandu, starring Bela Lugosi. We'll be airing as well during the Saturday Monster Kid Movie Club. Head over to monsterkidmovie.club to check it out. It starts at 11 a.m. Pacific on Saturday. It's totally free. The first hour is usually a documentary, some sort of pre-show, something that Monster Kids would dig. And then around noon is when everything else kicks off. I'll have the schedule finalized probably by Friday afternoon, if not sooner. And you'll be able to see the schedule first if you're a Facebook user, because I've got a Facebook event page set up for this movie screening on Saturday. Again, check the links in the show notes. I'd love to see you there. There's a live chat that goes all day long. Come for one movie or come for them all. You are welcome in the club. And spoiler, Tracy Morris and Stuffed with Character has an awesome giveaway planned for this weekend. The only other thing that I'll say about that is that it's big. And then, of course, on Tuesday, you see Monster Kid Astronomy Club, where we show a couple of science fiction movies. I don't have that lineup planned just yet, but stay tuned, because I'll make sure that gets announced by this weekend. You can learn everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. This is where you're going to find links to everything that we talk about here on the show. Links to Amazon to pick up any of David J. Scal's books. And really, I recommend all of them. But if you got to just pick one, pick the new one, Fried Favorites. It's top-notch. Of course, you can follow David and what he's up to over at his website at monstershow.net. Again, link in the show notes. 
Link to that blog by Alistair about Hammer versus Amicus. Links to Dr. Tongue's I Had That Shop, which is over at drtonguestoys.com. But follow the link nonetheless. And just because you're not in the Portland, Oregon area doesn't mean you can't support the shop. He does mail order. In fact, he's doing a lot of mail order right now because of what's happening in the world. So if you're interested, drop him a line. Check out what he's got and let him know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Did I mention the YouTube channels? Yeah, I've got various YouTube channels set up too, including the Electronics Service Unit number 16 YouTube channel, which is where the Dracula thing is going to happen in October. Stay tuned for more information about that. And normally I have a note about what's coming up next on the show, but I've got a handful of things that we can run next week, so stay tuned. That's literally what it's going to say when it says next week on Monster Kid Radio. Stay tuned. You can follow me on Facebook, you can join the Facebook group, and you can follow me on Twitter. Monster Kid Radio does have an Instagram, but I don't do a lot with it right now. I should probably change that. But if you're on Instagram, you can follow me there as well. And I think that's it. So let's just go ahead and remind you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song... Zanenziegel. That belongs to the band the Beachmasters of the Universe. You can find them on Bandcamp at beachmasters.bandcamp.com and pick up the entire album. Just make sure you do it on Friday because, like I said, that's the day that Bandcamp waives all their fees and you're helping the band out just a little bit more. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to you next week. Ciao. <laughs>